If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I think we've got a full house, which is great, on this glorious occasion of the publication of Unfinished Business, which is Michael's fourth or is it seventh novel, depending on whether we're counting novellas. I think we should, as a writer of slim stroke short books myself. Um, And it's his first in over 20 years. Uh, Of course, we know Michael didn't stop writing about art and culture. Um, Even if we just take the last few years, we've had What is Gilbert and George, uh, Modern World, The Art of Richard Hamilton, and various catalogues for the National Gallery on Bridget Riley and Richard Hamilton. Also in 2021, we had Souvenir, uh, which I know a lot of you will have read. It gives me special pleasure to be chairing this event because I've admired Michael's writing for a very long time. I think he was one of the first contemporary novelists that I was even aware of. I'm not sure I knew that there was such a thing uh, until my late teens. And um, I was then, and I am now completely captivated by his writing and the strange moods and moments that he is able to evoke. Unfinished Business is a novel of memory and apprehension. It's under 200 pages, but somehow opens to embrace decades and to explore depths of wondering and loss and regret. And the bouquets are incoming. Uh, The very discerning Max Liu in the FT called it humane, intimate and affecting because it explores universal themes, aging, marriage, friendship, mortality, and it celebrates beauty. The equally discerning Anthony Quinn in The Guardian described a Bracewellian scene as hung with shadows and murmurous implication, and said this temps perdu of a melancholy journeyman will reverberate long after the book is closed. Me and Michael agreed that a good way to start tonight was with a reading from the novel, uh, because really with Michael, the prose is the thing. Uh, so we're going to hear from the opening. Thank you so much, Gwendolyn. <laughs> That's all right. Damn. Um, so kind. Um, yes, I'll just read from the very opening of the book. I won't try to set it up because... Nobody would set it up if you were reading it. So it begins with a prologue, which is very short now. The prologue. I now introduce a black and white photograph taken in the autumn of 1978. The subject is my friend Francesca's boyfriend at that time, name of Martin Knight, with whom, as was her custom, she was briefly infatuated to the exclusion of all else. Francesca then just turned 18, I was nearly 20, and in the first flush of romance took the photograph herself, location, the long overgrown garden of her parents' house in Wimbledon. I recall the happy delight with which she crouched down to focus the camera, changing position to get different angles, and between shots, smiling encouragingly up at her beloved, who was seated, barely daring to breathe, on a precariously flimsy folding garden chair. But love or luck imbued the portrait with an undeniable sense of presence, 
The top button of his white shirt unfastened. This latest bow had loosened what I remember to be an antique silver-grey tie, flecked with pinpoints of pink silk thread. Beneath stylishly cut black hair, his young face is still soft-skinned and smooth-jawed. His nose is straight and his lips rather too red. The look in his dark brown eyes is watchful and uncertain, almost fierce. In what they hope to be the style of a matinee idol, there's a lighted cigarette between the middle and index fingers of Martin's left hand that rests lightly, thumb on high cheekbone, fingertips just touching his left eyebrow as he inclines his head to one side. Smoke rises in languid coils. It is a successful study of indolent pose, either despite or because of the sitter's self-consciousness, which defined him. Martin was a little younger than me, but seemed much younger. Francesca had told me, protectively, I felt, that he wrote poetry. He was eager to please and eager to impress. The way he conducted himself was like a succession of beginnings, hopeful shots at the world that resembled offerings or auditions. Forty years ago, the road ahead seemed to draw us steadily on towards real life. I was glad to get away, and so was Francesca. Not long after that, she left for Russia. Adventurous even in those days, I became a psychiatric nurse. I have no idea what happened to Martin. I don't suppose I'll ever see him again. Chapter 1 On an overcast January morning in the year 2017, a man was waiting to cross Cambridge Heath Road white sky over the interminable sprawl of East London. Behind him, in the cold, flat light, the shuttered Venus sports bar looked as though it had been locked and empty for years. He was still handsome. His dark hair was silvering at the sides, lending him a mildly distinguished air. He was reasonably, but not noticeably tall. His jawline and features had kept their definition. His tired eyes held an expression that was both sorrowful and aloof, wary, perhaps. His name in full was Martin Graham Crispin Knight, and he was 57 years old. He was wearing a black overcoat, faded black leather gloves, one of which he was holding in his left hand, and a black scarf. His ageing dark suit, black lace-up shoes, white shirt and nondescript tie pronounced him a lifer in the service of office work. Across the busy junction, he could see the dimly lit entrance to Cambridge Heath Station. The lights changed, and slowly, as though with effort, he started to cross the road. The platform was reached by two steep flights of covered stairs. Martin looked up from the dirty, bare subway that was open behind him to the street and the morning traffic. Then he began to climb. Such cramping and burning in his legs and feet, like flame-hot iron shoes that tightened with each step. Vascular disease, claudication. Only walking might improve the condition while only resting relieved the pain. Twenty years ago, he and Marilyn, then still his wife, had taken their seats quiet and scared in a white office in a private hospital. The consultant sat sideways to his desk, florid beneath an aristocratic mop of silver hair. And you must ask yourself, said the great man, do you prefer smoking to staying alive? 
The smartly dressed couple sat very still. I do not see an unsullied horizon, he went on, studying the file. You're extremely young. Martin's narrowed aorta was opened. He gave up smoking eventually. It felt like the end of his youth. Wow. <laughs> Unfinished business is a great title. Mm. Uh, it's quite sly in a way. It could almost imply a threat. And mm. I suppose one has to ask if it's um, whether one has unfinished business with the world or the world has unfinished business with one. Um, I think with Martin, both mm. apply. He suffers a lot, but he's also dogged and diligent and brave. But another reading, of course, taking a step back, is that you had unfinished business with the novel form itself. Mm. You abandoned it for 20 years. 22. 22. <laughs> um, when did you know you were going to come back? Or what was the germ of the book? Um, I think as a novelist and a very good one yourself, you'll agree that fiction in particular Absolutely nobody in their right mind would put themselves through the process of trying to write fiction unless you feel a need to. You know, it's not enough to kind of want to mm -hmm. or think it's a good idea or a good strategy. It does have to be a need. And of course, the moment you say that, you feel frightfully precious and pompous because you sort of think, how could, what possible use could the world have for my, my needs? I for a long time didn't feel the need and then I I did and what I needed I needed to know what happened to the characters in a book that I wrote when I was 29 called The Conclave oh. and um, I had this ready-made set of characters and I, it suddenly occurred to me I, I wanted to know what became of them um, and that was the start of, of this I've read The Conclave recently. The style that book is written in is very different and the mm. angle that you're taking mm. on Martin Knight at that point. Yeah. Did you read the book through again before starting this book? I sort of, yeah, I kind of read it um, and was appalled at... Um, I shouldn't say appalled. I should, I should be more generous, I suppose. I was very young. I was 29. I don't know if you've had this yourself, but with writing... There is that feeling of growing up in public a bit. Mm -hmm. And you spoke recently and you were so wise when you said how often one's early books you realise later were sketches mm -hmm. for something that you later have maybe the emotional maturity and just the technique to try to do. And the, the sad truth about my early fiction was that it, it was a series of what Proust, bless him, would probably call pastiches. Um, in as much as one was under the thrall of other sort of great writers and you start trying to write in their style. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote one book which was attempting to be E.M. Forster and, you know, God help us, the conclave, I was trying to be Flaubert, I think. <laughs> you know, after that, I mean, it got slightly worse because it became obscure and then I tried to be Cookie Muller and nobody had even heard of her. So. Oh, <laughs> but she's a great writer, can I point out. Um, Cookie Muller? Cookie Muller, friend of John Waters. Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah she starred in the... Yeah. Let's she get was, some on the table yeah, for no, later. Yeah, no, she's absolutely great, great, great writer. But So the Conclave, I was trying to be Flaubert and I, I, 
I sort of, I wanted to write those short, totally objective sentences that, mm -hmm. you know, and of course what you end up with if you're 29 and in a suburb near Croydon is uh, this mass of gaucheries. But I still, I still feel some compassion mm -hmm. for the character. Yep. Well, uh, compassion is elicited by this novel, certainly. My God. I also wonder how writing this fitted with the writing of Souvenir. Mm. Because in my mind, I would think they might be quite hard to disaggregate. Um, Souvenir, some of you will know, uh, plenty of you will know, I imagine, is um, a strange book, not quite a history, not quite a memoir mm. of... Um, sort of pre-digital London from mm. late 70s, early 80s. Mm. And it takes the form of these vignettes of mm. um, people and places. Mm. And, I mean, that description of Martin, he almost could have been mm. passing through one of those vignettes. And I think the time yeah. matches up a little bit. Mm. I even recognise the tie he's wearing. I think someone's wearing a similar tie. They are, yeah. They yeah. are. There we go. Um, yeah. And in both, mm. in both, in both mm. books, you use the phrase, young people of a certain disposition. Yeah. So how yeah. did you... Did you finish one and start the other? I know you've described mm. um, Souvenir as, quote, phenomenally difficult to write. Mm. Um, souvenir, as Gwendolyn says, it, it, it's, a, it's very, very short. It's barely 17,000 words. And how it happened was that a, an art dealer and gallerist called Carsten Schubert, who sadly isn't here anymore, he asked if I'd write a book about young British art, about YBA. And um, like most writers, I needed money. And so I said, yeah, of course, you know, it's the only thing I, I was born to write about, <laughs> YBA. And, you know, um, I put my copy of my son in my back pocket. Um, but then when I started trying to write it, I realized that I wasn't remotely interested in YBA, and indeed I was in Manchester when YBA was happening, so I didn't actually know anything about it anyway. But what did interest me was the London before YBA. So if you think of one of the starting whistles of YBA being around 1988, something like that, I, I started thinking back to that London before the art world was big and glamorous and expensive. Mm -hmm. And there were only about six galleries anyway, and nobody went to them. And um, it just led me to the West End, and I just started. So it came out of a commission to write about about YBA, which was abandoned. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very difficult to write. Yes, um, these short little sections. And then you moved st straight onto this one, to unfinished business. Uh, Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I was I was writing about um, art. Uh, I was writing about Richard Hamilton, um, but with the other, yes, I, I started writing this, which was equally difficult, actually, not quite as, as as difficult. Do you have a copy of Souvenir? Yeah, it's here. Can I read something from it? Do it. Yeah, yes, please. Of, Okay, so this, this little section, for instance, is called Exhibition of Polaroid Photographs, Labrook Grove, September 1983. There is an exhibition here of Polaroid photographs. The photographs show a young man's torso striped by the shadows of a Venetian blind 
the glow of an ice blue television screen surrounded by darkness, on which is a close-up image of a woman's mouth, lips parted, gold glitter lipstick, two boys stripped to the waist, stirring a glass tank of blue liquid, a bonfire on a beach against an angry sunset, dark clouds over the sea. These images accompany and are accompanied by a long piece of piano music that is only available on a cassette that has been compared to the music of Eric Satie, to that of Brian Eno. And anyway, we're here. No one stopped us from coming in. The front door was open. People are moving to Brussels, to Antwerp, to Berlin. The idea of these cities seems to describe a shift in creative sensibility. Die dirt, get in, die vey. People are moving to Chicago, to L.A., an essay in a magazine about sadomasochism and philosophy. That post-structural objection reflects its desire to disrupt complacencies in a nostalgia for modernism. Illustrations from the graphic novelization by Guido Crepax of Dessart's La Nouvelle Justine. Two evil queens, off-duty but still hostile and malign, are on the first floor, loftily perambulating the empty rooms. The silver high heels of one echo on the bare boards. Shoulder bags, plastic trousers, ivory white cotton pantaloons, cheesecloth shirt knotted just beneath the sternum, blue PVC biker jacket, drawn in eyebrows, blusher cheekbones like wing mirrors, hair full of rags and ribbons, Breton fisherman's cap. They glance towards us with expressions that barb indifference with contempt. This accompanied, they wander into the adjoining room. And then it goes on to talk about some Satanists in Mortimer Street um, <laughs> who were in Mortimer Street. And um, <laughs> it was where I met Lee Barry, actually, um, who was friends. It was this. Oh, we're talking about this. No. There was this woman um, who, not wanting to. Uh, it's kind of interesting. When I was at the London College of Printing, uh, I was in this ridiculous group. We were called a Diploma in Book and Periodical Production. Uh, this was just a gathering of Tweedy graduates who couldn't get jobs. Jane Hamlin, interestingly, who I wouldn't have thought needed a diploma in Book and Periodical Production, given her father owned a publishing house. Um, and also a young Japanese woman I became friends with called Akiko Hada. Now, Akiko Hada was friends with two performance artists called the Frank Chickens. This is like early 1980s. And she obviously no. came from money, and her parents bought her what she claimed had been the Duke of Clarence's brothel in Mortimer Street, which was just along the side of, uh, not Mortimer Street, Middle, um, uh, dear, you know the street, just off by, by the side of Middlesex Hospital. So she sort of held court there, and she lived with a guy who was a dealer in surrealist books and situationist memorabilia. And she'd have these dinner parties. And I sort of wondered, who the hell are these people coming to these parties? And there was this German guy who told me he played a Tibetan thigh-bone trumpet. <laughs> um, there was the ubiquitous Genesis Peorage, who could be incredibly charming, but was clearly a dangerous individual. Um, and also, um, on one occasion, Lee Bowery. And I, you know, I lived, as I say, in a suburb near Croydon with my parents. I didn't smoke or drink. I, lived, I worked in an office. I worked for the civil service. And I realized that these addicts and freaks and exhibitionists and 
as it turned out, Satanists. Um, what they wanted was the security of a commuter. They kind of gravitated. They, they, they liked the fact that there was one person in the room whose conversation was largely about season tickets and, you know, <laughs> the problem of the last bus and that sort of thing. And anyway, Lee Barry at Jelly, I remember. And he said, Jelly, my favorite. <laughs> and then, you know, it was back to Alistair Crowley. And this guy told us about he'd been watching someone being cremated. And did I know bodies sat up when they were burned? And... Yikes. Anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, hand me that to follow. OK. Sorry. Um... <laughs> I'm going to sound very... No, 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 go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I was struck by the different treatment of memory, mm. uh, different use of memory and treatment of time in the two books. So souvenir mm. is very much an act of retrieval and resurrection. And as mm. that extract that you read showed, it's, it feels like time travel. You are there. Mm. Whereas in Unfinished Business, um, Martin is not trying to recreate the past. He is... Well, what's he doing? I, I, I thought of a phrase of Malcolm Lowry, haunting the gutted arcades of the past. Mm. Um, and there's a very stark thing he says at one point. Since I was 15, I've spent my life reading books either by or about dead homosexuals, and now my conversation is comprised solely of reminiscences. Mm. Every 50 paces, I stop to look for something that's gone, some shitty pub where I once saw the damned, that kind of thing. It's mm. quite a startling admission. Mm. In... Um, in the, in the prologue that you read out, the statement is, I have no idea what happened to Martin. And in a way, this book is Martin trying mm. to find out what happened yeah. to me. How would you characterize some of his suspicions and investigations mm. on that score? Well, I thank you. It's an incredibly astute question. I suppose something that has always interested me and what I meant about the, I've spent my life reading books by or about dead homosexuals, is that I'm one of those people, I don't know if you were one of them, but when I was about 14 or 15, I guess sort of when um, I probably should have been doing other things, I, I became sort of morbidly interested in people like Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. And also... I think maybe morbidly interested in well as well in this is going to sound very old fashioned in beauty, the subject really i I felt beauty I wouldn't have known what aesthetics were then, although the science of feelings, which is one definition, makes sense, and I suppose Martin, as a kind of autobiographical avatar, his problem is that he's born into a time of prosperity in, the, uh, in 1960, uh, a time of accelerating consumerism and extravagance. And his motivation, his pleasure principle, is to be with beauty. It's a kind of rather archaic occupation. And I guess that when I was young, that idea to try to sort of track down beauty did seem worthwhile, but the, the suspicion began to occur to me probably 20 years ago. It started, what is beyond beauty? Mm -hmm. Where is beauty going to get you? 
And so I got terribly excited because I read W.H. Auden and I got really interested in, not that I can claim to understand a half of what Auden wrote, but certainly his notion that he adopted from Kierkegaard that you go through an aesthetic stage where it's all about beauty, it's about the dandy, mm -hmm. really. And that always had appealed to me. And I knew some veteran dandies. And, I mean, it's... The other thing about being a dandy, with a parenthesis here, about being a dandy is it's bloody hard work. <laughs> Sebastian Horsley told me that, I remember. He, he said, you know, you, you think, just sitting around being flippant and af aphoristic, mm -hmm. he said there are people who are grey with fatigue being, <laughs> being, being dandies. But anyway, so I'd done the dandy thing, so Auden says, well, where's that going to get you? And so all these beautiful young men in the 1920s who'd gone to Munich and had this sort of fabulous dandified time, they then went to politics. Mm. And they thought, no, the thing to do is social justice. That's what we need, social justice. Let's all join the Communist Party. And um, we're going to go to Spain next on bicycles. And we're going to fight Franco. And it's social justice, politics, left, yes, great. Which is sort of where we've come back to now in an odd kind of way. And then the terrible thing was, uh, as Auden experienced, they went to Spain and they saw atrocities on both sides. They realised that social justice is as big a sham as aesthetics. That doesn't get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. So you've been to Cambridge, you've been to Charterhouse, you've done all these things, and you're frightfully clever, you've read books, you know about beauty. And what do you do? Well, if you're W.H. Auden in 1940, you go to New York and you revert to Anglicanism. Auden, again, slightly fudges it because he, he borrows it from Kierkegaard. He talks about the religious phase, about the specifically the religious. Now, I come clean. That's what really interested me with Martin. I wanted to hint. I could never say it directly in the book because it would be difficult. But I wanted to hint that he is open to the possibility of Christianity. At the end of the, he's open to it. He is aware of it as something more than just a kind of dusty abstract. That, mm -hmm. you know, Auden wrote a letter in 1941, which he begins by saying the number of cultivated intellectual people he knows or knew who would be more offended by somebody talking about Christianity and theology than they would be by them sort of, you know, a bit like my Satanists in Mortimer Street, you know, a great bit of Satanists, you know, but somebody actually sort of saying, I read the Gospel of St. John and I found it really interesting. Mm -hmm. And has anybody actually stopped and thought, what if it's true? You know, that's going to kill the conversation. Imagine going to the Freeze Art Fair, can you sit here now, you know, and sort of, hello, yes, you have come to do my talk. What about, oh, well, I thought I'd talk about the relevance of the service of Holy Communion. Yes, well, you know, you know, you clear the room. But I wanted, with, so Martin, to answer your question, Martin's journey in my head had been, he's come from beauty, where's he going? Mm -hmm. And where he's going in my head is an awareness in this case of Christianity, but it could just be of the religious. 
Yeah. So that sounds frightfully pompous, but there you go. No, it doesn't sound there pompous at all. And one of the striking things, and a lot of the power of the novel comes <clears> from <throat> wondering what you were saying beyond beauty. It seems at certain points that Martin is stranded in a terrible netherworld. He was bitten by this, or beguiled by this idea of life as a, as a sure. teenager, and where has it taken him? One of the things you do is sort of physically represent that around London, because he's often very elevated, so this pursuit of the higher life has now sort of left him psychically stranded at mm. certain points, as we mm. saw with trying to climb up to that mm. station platform. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the first moments where there's a hint of Christianity is after something appalling happens mm. um, in Martin's life, I'll say that, and it, mm. there's a connection on Holland Park tube station. Mm. I think this is such a great London novel, and there are certain places and certain scenes that will they'll be indelibly written in my mind now. When I'm in those places, I'll think of those scenes. But I wondered, perhaps going back a slight half step, but what does London mean to Martin as the suburban boy? It's interesting. London, to him, as I guess probably to an awful lot of people in, the, in this room, it represents, you know, everything that Wordsworth meant, you know, when he talks about in the prelude about residence in London, that, that idea that once you cross those bridges, anything can happen, and that it's a power base, I'm also reminded in him of something in Christopher Isherwood's early autobiography where he says when he was a young man and he came to London, one of the things he did is he'd wander around pretending to be rich. <laughs> you know, kind of, I'm rich. And, um, you know, he was from a fairly well-off background, but he... And the other thing that Isherwood said is that he, in his early walks around London when he was young, I'm sure maybe lots of us have done this, he'd glance down streets and they'd remind him of Venice or an imagining of Venice or of Paris or of somewhere, or Chicago, somewhere, this sort of heightened romance. And it's that strange thing that those of us who've read lots of books by and about dead homosexuals will remember from my friend Jennifer Higgins' favourite book, Against Nature by Wiesmann, um, which... Wiesmann talks about this aesthete who, for whom looking at travel brochures and inhaling a scent of tar is more like going abroad than going abroad. And London can sort of do that. You can glimpse something and it feels almost more like being in St Mark's Square or being in, you know, the Esplanade in Helsinki than if you actually went there. And I think for Martin, it's that kind of place it's mm. it's mm -hmm. kaleidoscopic and five-dimensional and it's also obviously at the age he is when we meet him in this book he's reached that point which I guess some of us here will have where you feel when you're walking around London you're writing your memoir by walking you're not writing your memoir where you're walking it mm -hmm. and um, he so so London for him is also his autobiography as well, which happens, I guess, to all of us, probably. Well, speaking of being rich, um, this book is largely about one man's reckoning with his past, but as you mentioned, there were other characters from the Conclave that we've um, catch up with, including his ex-wife and her parents. 
rich. Mm. Um, that again reminded me of Forster a little bit. The encounters mm. there between the the, um, the the rich and the non-rich, the metropolitan and the mm. suburban. Um, there's an appalling moment when Marilyn visits Martin in hospital, and he realizes that shared reminiscence was out of the question. Mm. So and again and again, he's, they close ranks against mm. him. Um, mm. How do their stories work with Martin's in the book? Um, Marilyn's. And Marilyn. I mean, Marilyn. So Martin, my central character, um, has been married to this woman called Marilyn Fuller. And Marilyn's father is a successful Marxist film director who has married a, a well into a wealthy family himself. His his wife, who is an expert on Wagner, um, comes from money, and so he's Marilyn's father is supposed to have kind of risen to prominence off the back of the free cinema movement in the late nineteen fifties, and since then he's become a sort of a bit of a guru, a bit of a kind of intellectual left-wing pin-up. And they have a lovely villa on Primrose Hill and they have lovely lunch parties and talk about how terrible the Conservative Party is and, you know, then sort of go off to their watermills in Burgundy and <laughs> sort of highly paid jobs in the BBC and that sort of thing. But Marilyn, as the daughter of such a person is utterly materialistic. She, her, she likes shopping for nice things. That's her ambition. And so that's why she and Martin got on in the first place. But she moves in a very different world to him. And by the time this book starts, she's going up a notch or two. She's in her early 50s and she's met an older man who is actually wealthy rather than, you know, Primrose Hill. Martin has no place being suburban. Um, I mean, I can tell you, actually, as a representative of the suburbs, I'm, a kind, I'm sort of actually the ambassador. If, I, <laughs> if we had an embassy, um, I am the ambassador of suburbia. And we are genuinely shot by both sides because, how can I put this nicely? It's like a lot of aristocratic people actually get on very well with working class people. They find them colourful and, you know, interesting and sort of funny and, above all, amusing. Um, and ditto the other way around, you know, that I know it's that thing that Julie Birchall had this brilliant line, can a Birchall look at a Churchill? <laughs> and it works that way as well. But if you are suburban middle class, everybody hates you. <laughs> so it's the perfect, if you think about it, riddle me this, the great... <laughs> The great dandy protagonists of the 1920s in Britain, Exhibit A, Cecil Beaton, Exhibit B, Noel Coward, Exhibit C, John Betjeman, Exhibit D, Evelyn Waugh, the ones who really became the anatomist representatives of English upper-class dandified poshocracy, all suburban every single one of them, because they were outsiders. And they knew perfectly well that when they got to Oxford or to whatever their social agency was, they had to do this incredible act of autofaction, you know, remake themselves as, you know, to, to become more aristocratic than the aristocracy, which the clever amongst us recognise as Baudelaire. You know, this is what Baudelaire says, the anatomy of the origin of the dandy is. You know, it's when democracy is not yet 
powerful and what is it, heroism, the last spark of heroism in an age of decadence. And I think that that's tied in really with Martin as well. He's one of those people who's tried to recreate himself as some kind of aristocrat. And of course, you know, you've, that's a doomed occupation unless, you're, unless you've got something to back it up. Um, and um, so his, his suburbanness is in constant collision, really, A, with his metropolitan aspirations, and B, with the sort of world that he married into and got spat out of as well. So, you know, um, shot by both sides, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think Martin's outsider perspective is one of the brilliant motors of the book and his, um, as you say, aspiration. Um, but his outsider's perspective, again, talking about how he, he's not solipsistic, really. Mm -hmm. And it's a very richly peopled book. Um, Max Liu, who I'm looking at, um, com compared some of the descriptions of the people he sees to a street photographer. And my own thought was that it was often like a very crowded sketchbook page. Mm. Some of the times when he sort of pans around the room and um, there's, a, there's an occasion where he's at university in Liverpool and is looking around at the various students with pasty skin and mm. brown wool. Um, so this does feel like the watchfulness of one of life's real outsiders. Mm. Um, which I enjoy, uh, as someone from um, Reedville Road, Bebbington. <laughs> and um, so the other thing I want to ask about, maybe this could be the last question before from the floor, would be about, um, probably slightly a Bonorzic question, but especially given what we've just heard, but I wanted to ask about um, technology. It struck me that though we have Martin remembering mm. certain songs, what we never have him doing is putting his earpods in. Um, I think in the digital age, it's so easy to be distracted nonstop. Um, mm. He doesn't want to be. Mm. Um, so did you decide to exclude that? Or did it come naturally to you to exclude it? I mean, it comes naturally to me when I'm writing to not mm. include certain things, I suppose, because I don't mm. use them myself. But mm. I don't know about choices. I mean, like, I rather, I rather felt that he he do, he do, he doesn't he doesn't want to join in mm. and i think maybe he's quite typical of people of that generation who are too old really to have taken to social media and technology in a natural fluid way mm -hmm. you know they're still a bit sort of nervous with this do you know yeah um and I could also imagine Martin being a bit sort of chippy about it, you know, that, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't be seen dead on Facebook, you know, I wouldn't kind mm -hmm. of, you know. Um, so I didn't really have him doing that. And that was also linked to the fact that he, generationally, he was a beneficiary of the rise of IT. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to work in the City of London in, it's not specified, but it's within finance. Um, but he's not at the glamorous end of it. He's, he's in the sort of service industry bit, you know, the, the sort of information technology part, not the investment banker bit. And um, so he, his, it's ironically, his job is technology. And he says at one point, but he, can't, he doesn't even know what his job is anymore. Yep. And he's aware that he's now this kind of dinosaur, really, in this 
office. There are wonderful moments. Another thing Martin is prone to is these Billy Lyre-esque flights of fancy. And there's one when he's in one of his work meetings and suddenly imagines a post-apocalyptic landscape while yeah. looking at the ceiling tiles. Yeah. I feel very sorry to have ended on a question, why isn't Martin on Facebook? <laughs> no, it's <laughs> I'm very sorry. Good. Very good. <laughs> um, yes. So can we... Raise the levels with questions from the audience, maybe now. I think that's that time at this point. It's wonderful to hear both of you talk. Thanks very much uh, for, for the event so far. I, my question is just about office work as a subject for fiction. And uh, it sounded like you had been, you mentioned you'd been in the civil service mm. and some time ago. And I know you'd written about office work in the conclave and in certainly in perfect tense. Mm. But I wonder when was it? maybe that you stopped office work and ha have you had to sort of remember that the office life in order to replicate that in fiction or is it something you've gone back and researched again subsequently? No, my, I actually stopped working in an office um, in 1988. Um, so offices have changed hugely since then. Um, and I can't honestly say I've gone back and researched it. I, I felt stra strangely that I could kind of get, guess quite accurately about a lot of contemporary office life. I don't think it maybe it sort of cha changes that, that much, but I, in terms of, you know, it's the politics of, of the office and all that sort of thing. I, I guess now, obviously, there's you know different ways of working where you know you you change. It's, it, I mean, I I was in a television production office, not for anything to do with me. I hasten to add, I was just meeting someone there, and um, it it was actually it's a bit like the early learning centre in Manchester. <laughs> it, it kind of it was all like play pens and you know and uh, three coffee machines and. I don't feel I ever really escaped totally from the office. I still have dreams where I'm, I'm back there. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> and so on. Thank you for a marvellous talk. Um, Michael, a simple but maybe complicated question mm. at the same time. What made you stop writing fiction and why did you start again after 22 years? Um... As I mentioned, it's to do with need. I also, to be absolutely honest with you, I, I didn't really feel that... I mean, I published some fiction between 1988 and 1998. You know, there's that great line of John Betjeman's at the start of Summoned by Bells, where he says, um, the gap between my feelings and my skill was so immense, I wonder I continued. Oof. And I felt like that, that, you know, I think a lot of people who try to write fiction go through this phase where they're basically, they're writing romantic projections of themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. It can be quite honourable. But you can only do it once or twice at the beginning. It's like with Scott Fitzgerald, you know, he gets away with it, with this side of paradise. He's not really getting away with it with Beautiful and the Damned. And then there's this quantum leap and he writes The Great Gatsby. And it's something that Gwendolyn and I have spoken to. Gwendolyn, you've written six? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were talking about this the other day that if, I mean, I, I'm only citing what Gwendolyn says, but 
you were saying you you think of your first four as sketches, but mm-hmm. if you read Gwendolyn's two recent books, First Love and My Phantom, that's the quantum leap to the Great Gatsby. Well, not quite. And to you, the Great not Gatsby. far <laughs> off, can I point out? Not far <laughs> off. They're incredible books. And you know, but what I'm trying to say is, is that thing where Absolutely. suddenly yeah. you stop simply thinking, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going to write about some girlfriend who messed me about or something, and <laughs> you know, you actually write something which is itself. And I felt I hadn't done that, hence the 22-year wait. And I still don't know that I've done it. I mean, you read, I was thinking this the other day, about any of us who try to make anything, the bar with art, the bar is set so high you know, I wonder any of us continue. You know, I mean, you sort of, the moment you sit down with a pencil and a piece of paper, you're up against everyone, from Virginia Woolf to Bruce Nauman. I mean, where do you, where do you go with that? You know, I, I watched Stalker the other night on TV and on, on, the, on the interweb, on the, on the machine. And the last, the last 40 minutes of Stalker you know, 1979, Tarkovsky, it's, it's pulverising. How do you do that? Well, the other option is to look at lots of bad novels and then feel <laughs> cheerful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's not, it's not the right way to go. No, of course, you're quite right. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, um, bland answer. Really. A fabulous answer, a fabulous yeah. answer. Um, do we have one more? Uh-huh. Um, Michael, I was struck in both books, um, in the novel and in Souvenir, by what seemed like a sort of movement between really, really detailed, particular cultural references, um, especially in Unfinished Business, this, the details of furniture, of decor, of, of dress and so on. And then other moments where things are really tantalizingly vague. And so in Unfinished Business, I'm thinking about the band that's described, the performance that's described in, in beautiful detail, but not named. And it's, it's clearly Joy Division, or is it? Um, and then in Souvenir, in fact, in the passage that you, that you read out, the Polaroid exhibition, I was reading that and thinking, is it David Sylvian's Polaroid exhibition from around that time? But we don't know. And I just wonder, when it comes to that kind of detail, how you decide what deserves to be named, what, will, what names will resonate and maybe what names are, will resonate too much. Thank you. Sorry, this is the great Brian Dillon. Sorry, can I just... <laughs> <laughs> but I am um, sorry, big fan. What I don't like, and I don't know if you feel the same, is when you put a name into something, it brings baggage with it. And if, for instance, with the band, I said it's Joy Division, I felt that somehow it would slightly kind of, it would almost kind of like make it a bit of an anticlimax. Oh, yeah, it's Joy Division. And so I kind of, I prefer to leave things open, I think. I mean, the the exhibition of Polaroids, they weren't David Sylvian's Polaroids, actually. It It was a very strange thing which had been set up by the composer Simon Fisher-Turner. Um, and he wrote a piece of music called The Longest River in the World, which you could buy on a cassette. And there were these um, Polaroids. I don't actually know who they, who they were by. They, they were slightly Derek Jarmany, but I don't know. They might have been Jarman, I'm not sure. But um, I sort of feel that to name something 
can sometimes, in a strange way, limit it. Yeah, I, th I think to sort of to give something the space for the reader to kind of fill in what they might might think it it was. It's like with the with the um, Cleveland Street, the the, the Satanists. Um, if one had said, oh, I mean, I mentioned Lee Barry. Do I mention Lee Barry? I can't remember. No, I don't, not by name. But again, it's to keep it a bit, a bit mysterious. But um, that's a very poor answer, I'm afraid. But um, it's, it's another great answer. Yeah. Stop. Stop. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. have, we, have we got another, another question we have over here? Hello. Hi. Um, it's a roadside picnic stalker question. Yeah. What do you think if you were in the zone and you went into the room, what do you think you would ask for? And what do you think he would be granted? Oh, my goodness me. Um, That's quite a personal question, actually, I realise that. I think I'd leave that one with Tarkovsky, actually. I mean, because in the f at the end, when they get into the room, I think that the way Tarkovsky... And I don't want to spoil the film for you, but I think the way it's not what you think is going to happen happens is sort of a simulacrum of what answer I would give you. That it's whatever you think I might possibly want and what I might think I'd get, I think they'd probably be different too. Um, but it's a, it's a good question. Um, well, what you want and what you get are themes of unfinished business for sure. Yeah, yeah. So. Anyway, there we are. <laughs> it's, yes. Thank so you, Michael. It. That was yeah, no, absolutely can't. brilliant. <laughs>